The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Kari Hammerschlag. She is Deputy Director of Friends of the Earth's Food and Agriculture Program. And for the past eight years, Kari has led the organization's animal agriculture work. It specifically aims to advance policies at the state, federal, and international levels to support a transition away from factory farming and towards a healthier, more just, and sustainable food system. Ms. Hammerschlag also oversees the organization's Climate-Friendly School Food Initiative, which aims to scale up plant-based and organic school meals using purchasing dollars to support local farmers and ranchers. Before joining Friends of the Earth, Ms. Hammerschlag worked as a senior analyst with the Environmental Working Group, where she focused on the U.S. Farm Bill, GMOs, organic agriculture, and conservation policy. She has extensively researched the links between food production and climate change, and prior to her work with the Environmental Working Group, she worked as a sustainable food policy and fair trade consultant. She holds a master's degree from the University of California in Berkeley in Latin American studies and city and regional planning, and she has worked on food and agriculture issues for more than three decades, ever since she first read Diet for a Small Planet. Welcome, Kari. Thank you so much, Melinda. That was a really beautiful introduction. I don't know how many people have been impacted by Diet for a Small Planet, but when I think about the tremendous ripple effects that it has had, I have to smile and think and look at all of the great work that you've done. I am curious to know a little bit more about Friends of the Earth. I have always respected the publications and the work of Friends of the Earth, but tell me more about the organization and what led you to it. Yeah, well, Friends of the Earth has been around for more than 50 years. We were founded in 1969 by David Brower, and our mission is really to defend the environment and work for a healthier and more just world. And we have more than four and a half million members and supporters, activists across all 50 states. And one of the things that I really love about Friends of the Earth is that we are part of an international Friends of the Earth Federation, which is a network of organizations across 74 countries that are all working for social and environmental justice. So we work in alliance with lots of organizations around the world, and we work on a lot of different issues. We have a food and agriculture program, we have a climate program, we have an oceans program, and we have an economic policy program. So we work across a lot of different issues, and we're very intersectional in that we see a lot of connections between the importance of fighting for racial justice and social justice as being very intertwined with environmental justice and fighting for a cleaner and more sustainable planet. So I love Friends of the Earth. I was just thrilled to join the organization I feel like I found my home there, and I worked with them years ago when I was doing international work, and I was just so happy to go back and love the organization, and I have wonderful colleagues, and I feel very grateful to be there. 
Well, I will provide a link to Friends of the Earth because I want people to know more about this organization. And I had pulled down some information too. And I highlighted a section. It says, we seek three fundamental shifts in our food system from toxic and chemical intensive to healthy and ecologically regenerative, from corporate controlled to democratically governed, and from a system that embodies the deepest inequities in our society to one that advances justice and fulfills the needs of all eaters now and in the future. So there's a recognition that all of those issues that you brought forth, they are all connected. And it's wonderful to find an organization that recognizes that and works for justice. You know, you used a word, though, that I want to pull out because it's one that you've probably heard in a negative way, and that is the word activist. If somebody hears about Friends of the Earth, they might say that's an activist organization in a negative way. And I want to switch that and help people understand that activism is a way to support justice and clean water and clean air and all of the things that we want. So why would it have such a negative connotation? Well, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, So much of our food and agriculture policy today is really dictated by the power of big ag. I mean, you could call them activists, I suppose, for their vision of agriculture, which is a vision that is destroying our planet. And we are activists and advocates for a much different kind of food system that's more equitable and that protects our natural resources and that treats animals humanely and that promotes healthy food for humans as opposed to junk food, which is a lot of what our, unfortunately, our policies and what the industry has been pushing for years. So I think that we are an activist organization. We're very proud of it. (laughs) Exactly. We need to work on paying attention to the words that are used and how those words are used either for or against us. And I neglected to mention something in the introduction that I intended to, and that was a publication that Friends of the Earth was part of the authoring of, and it is titled Spinning Food, How Food Industry Front Groups and Covert Communications Are Shaping the Story of Food. That was published in 2015. It is still such a valuable publication. I will provide a link to that also in the show notes. But it gets to that conversation about the words that are used to support the industrial system that isn't helping anyone. Yeah, Spitting Food, I was a co-author on that with Anna Lepe and Stacey Malkin, and it was basically uncovering just when you read things in the media. It's a very complicated media landscape, of course, with a lot of fake news, so to speak, that is coming from the industry, actually. And so there is a lot of spin, and we find that when you go deep into certain articles, you see that there's the industry is behind it. And so I think one of the things that we need to just really encourage all to really dig into your sources and read lots of different things so that you can get a fuller picture of what the real story is, because industry controls a lot of the narrative. They have a lot of power with the media, and it is really important to dig underneath that and look for a lot of different independent sources when you are reading about these things. Yeah. It's so difficult to navigate media. There's so much misinformation and disinformation and rhetoric and propaganda. But I think we can all agree, however, that we are facing some very challenging times. And the way we produce our food is really at the heart of so many justice issues, climate issues, environmental contamination, and public health. 
And I've wanted to have you on as a guest for so many years, but I think that your recent work was the tipping point for me. You have been talking about the role of multinational development banks. And Kari, I had no idea what multinational development banks do. I had no idea until I read several of your recent pieces about how they are funding industrial agriculture. And so what was it that tipped you to understanding or wanting to dig deeper into these public development banks? And how is it that they are financing factory farms? First of all, these are multilateral development banks. These are banks like the World Bank and the private sector arm of the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation. There's also regional development banks like the Inter-American Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank. And these are banks that are supposed to be advancing development in the world. And they have certain mandates. Um, they're owned by governments. So the shareholders of these banks are our government. They're our governments. It's our money. And in the case of the U.S., the U.S. is a 20% shareholder in these banks. So I was very interested in looking at what these banks were funding under the guise of sustainable development, because these banks have a mandate, and they have many policies, actually, that dictate what they can lend, how they can lend. And they do have a very strong mandate around advancing the U.N. Sustainable Development Goals, which are, are really about poverty and equity, gender equity, health and also the Paris Agreement around climate change. So they want to align, and they've made a pledge to align all their lending with the Paris Agreement. And so a diverse coalition of groups from across the world, the U.S., Europe, and the Global South came together to launch this campaign that is focused on shifting the public development finance money away from destructive animal agribusiness companies towards more sustainable food production. And really, the goal is to make the case to these banks that this kind of lending is out of alignment with their pledges around climate and sustainable development. And so it's really about having that debate, like what is alignment with the Climate Paris Agreement and what is sustainable development? And we're in this fight right now as we speak with the International Finance Corporation about a particular loan in Brazil that is going to a big multinational company, a very profitable company that already has billions of dollars available for investment. They don't need public money. It's called Louis Dreyfus Company, and they are a big global trader. And the $200 million loan for a big soy and corn monoculture to support their purchases of soy and corn, which ultimately will go to factory farms to feed animals because 77% of all Soybeans are going to feed animals, not humans. So that is really why we decided to focus on public development banks. I can tell you more about this campaign and where we're, what we're doing and what we've done. We've had some victories here. But I think it's really important for folks to understand what a huge role animal agriculture plays in climate in generating emissions. And all the data show that we really have to stop expanding and actually we need to reduce the production of animals for human food if we are going to ever have any hope of achieving our climate targets. I think what surprised me so much, Kari, is that my entire professional career has been based on understanding food nutrition and public health, and more recently, the impacts on environment and climate. But never at any conference that I've attended, 
have I ever learned about how banking systems work either for or against those goals of sustainability, of public health? And so I was so interested to learn more about this. And as you say, this is public money. So these are our tax dollars that are being spent to support investment in livestock and soy and corn production that will go to feed those factory farm animals. But who is holding these development banks accountable? Well, that's a really good question because that's exactly what we're talking to the U.S. Executive Director's Office at the World Bank and the Germans and the Nordics and the Dutch, etc. So the governments are the ones that are supposed to hold the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, they're supposed to hold this institution accountable to their policies and to their mandates. And so it's really our governments that are supposed to do that. And we are having dialogues with them and we're sending lots of letters. We had 235 organizations sign a letter that went to the IFC and to all the executive directors. And then many different groups have been sending letters and calling their executive directors to say, please do not support this loan. And in particular, say, if you are going to support this loan, you need to go back and do a much more comprehensive environmental and social impact study to understand what are the full scope of these impacts. This loan in particular is funding soy and corn production in the Cerrado of Brazil, which is a biodiversity hotspot. It's home to 5% of the world's biodiversity. It is, together with the Amazon, a very, very important ecosystem that is really affecting global weather patterns. And we know and studies have shown that this monoculture production there is depleting water, is creating a lot of drought, and it is, it's really changing weather patterns. And it's not a sustainable form of agriculture, even though the IFC says it is. And just to say, in the United States, unfortunately, our government is spending tens of billions of dollars to support this kind of unsustainable monoculture production, which is going for biofuels for cars and feed for animals. So we're perpetuating this form of agriculture. We're exporting it overseas. And yet our government and the banks, they claim to be promoting sustainable development. And that's why it's so important. I'm really proud and happy to be part of this campaign because these projects are emblematic of the problems with this kind of agriculture. And We can use them as examples and really make a point of why this approach to agriculture and investment is wrong. And how can they be serious about fighting climate change and invest in in these projects where we know this company, Louis Dreyfus, is very much implicated in massive deforestation, human rights abuses, land grabbing. They don't fully trace their supply chain in the region. There's so many issues that are problematic here, and yet the IFC just is really at this point ignoring even concerns that are raised by the government. So something needs to be done, and we just have to keep fighting. I mean, we'll just keep raising these issues. Right. Um, it's really important. This is civil society holding public banks accountable. And I think that's why we're focused on public banks. We also, at Friends of the Earth, do a lot of work in the private banking, in the private sector, and we'll be expanding that work actually in the coming years because there's a lot more money in the private sector going to these kinds of big mega meat and dairy corporations. And we really need to halt the expansion of this kind of agriculture if we want to have any chance of avoiding the worst impacts of climate change. 
Right. I was going to say, if we have any chance of having a future on this planet. A future, yeah. Right. Well, let me take one break because we are halfway through, and I just need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Ms. Kari Hammerschlag. She is Deputy Director of Friends of the Earth's Food and Agriculture Program. Kari, as you're talking about the banks, and as I've been reading your latest publications on this, and I'll provide links so that our listeners can learn more about these relationships, I'm thinking of the messages that we get most often about agriculture. And they're messages like, you know, shop at the farmer's market more. We can all vote with our forks. And then I read your report and I realize this is so much bigger than my N equal one purchases at my local market. Not to say that they're not important. They are. But as we can make changes on this very small local level, there's a much larger impact from how banks are investing in these tremendous livestock operations and really destroying, you know, as you mentioned, the biodiversity, the indigenous territories, and people who are truly living in agroecological models sustainably, and yet these banks give lip service to sustainability. What can we do as listeners to this? What are our lever points? Well, that's a good question. I think that there's a lot of different ways to get involved. And of course, one is to join groups like Friends of the Earth. So please go to our website at foe.org and join our listserv because then you'll be getting our action alerts and you'll be hearing a little bit. We'll be giving you campaign updates and you'll be hearing more about what we're doing on this. And you can join with action alerts and sending emails and making phone calls, et cetera. I think that it happens at different levels. So in terms of like what folks can do beyond vote with your fork three times a day, like you said, that's so important. We need to do that. It does make a difference. It builds the market for the better meat, for the better food, for the, for the organic, if you can't afford it, if you can find it. But I would say that we need to build up our champions in Congress that are fighting against factory farms. And we do have some in the Senate. And I would say one thing folks can do is if they want to get involved in supporting transition away from factory farming, they can support a bill that's called the Farm System Reform Act. And that's a bill that is written by Senator Cory Booker that would put a moratorium on new factory farms. It would basically say no more. And it would end most subsidies for factory farms and it would support a transition away from these by offering a voluntary buyout to producers who are involved in the factory farming system and who are kind of stuck because they are essentially in the system and can't get out. So that bill, it's Senate Bill 2332, and you can Google Farm System Reform Act to see if your representative or senators are on are co-sponsoring the bill. I think the key champions right now in the Senate are familiar names to progressives out there. Cory Booker is, of course, the leader, and then Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Kristen Gillibrand are the four co-sponsors that I know of. So we need more co-sponsors. We need to build up support in the House and in the Senate because the political reality, unfortunately, is really quite depressing. These animal ag companies and their trade groups have more political power than the fossil fuel industry. And the Democrats are often as bad as the Republicans on that. I mean, as you know, Melinda, we've got 
Tom Vilsack at the helm of the U.S. Department of Agribusiness is how I call it, not the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They're really there promoting agribusiness, although I will say that recently they have made some great strides in increasing financing for sustainable agriculture at USDA. So USDA is kind of taking an all-of-the-above approach. They're definitely investing more in sustainable agriculture And that's great, and we applaud them for that. But they also are very much in bed with big ag, with big meat and dairy, and they support them in many, many different ways, including spending half a billion dollars on the avian flu. That's a whole other topic. So I would say really reaching out to your members of Congress and letting them know that you're concerned about this issue. And I think this one piece of legislation, it probably will never get adopted, but it's really important to build the support and educate members of Congress about why it's so important to support this. Right. Okay, and so the campaign that you've been talking about is called the Divest Factory Farming Campaign. Yes, we actually, the campaign is Stop Financing. We've actually changed our name. It's the Stop Financing Factory Farming Campaign. And that is an international campaign, which is global. And what I was just talking about was more supporting a domestic bill that would really just support a transition away from factory farming in the U.S. So that's just something people can do in the U.S. And that's the Farm System Reform Act, Senate Bill 2332. Great. Okay. So we've got a national focus, and then we've also got an international focus. And I think that as we progress with recognizing how climate change is impacting more people every day, we really are starting to see our planet as one. We are one on this planet. And what happens in the Amazon is going to affect us here in the United States. So understanding that then, looking at these larger bank investments becomes really critical. So I was interested in your work on the Marfrig loan. I feel like that was a success in that the loan was stopped. Yeah. So this is a loan that we saw the Inter-American Development Bank, was. it was in their pipeline to Marfrig Global Foods, which is the second largest beef company in the world. They are a giant and they have a track record of corrupt practices in Brazil. They've been litigated against, fined for corruption. They have a whole bunch of failed commitments where they've said they're going to stop deforesting and they've, they're going to trace their supply chain. They've failed on those commitments. A lot of history of, with land grabbing where they're working with suppliers who are stealing indigenous lands, as well as a lot of illegal deforestation in the Amazon and then Tejado, which is the the savannah uh, very close by to the Amazon, a very threatened ecosystem. So this loan from the Inter-American Development Bank is a $200 million loan. It would have basically given Marfrig a green seal of approval to leverage additional private financial flows. Like it's Marfrig's trying to pretend that they are a sustainable beef company, essentially, and they were putting, they're putting out green bonds in the European market. And this loan would have basically given the green light to a lot of other investors to invest in this company. And so we exposed all of the problems with this company in the Amazon and the Sahado and got 200 and almost 300 civil society organizations across the world signed a letter. Dozens of groups reached out to the executive directors of the Inter-American Development Bank institution and urged them to vote no. We reached out to staff in that institution. We did some press. We did a lot of social media, which is really important as a great way to elevate the issue. 
And lo and behold, we were able to stop this loan from going through. They pulled the loan after over eight months of preparation. And so we were thrilled that that happened. It doesn't happen very often. It's very rare for a bank to pull it. And we think that we really made the case that this loan would have been completely antithetical to the Inter-American Development Bank's pledged commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement to deforestation-free lending, et cetera. And we think we, we don't have all the details of how it all came about, why they stopped it, but we think that there are really good people inside these banks that care about these issues and are willing to put their neck out and say, we shouldn't be funding this. So that was very encouraging. And we continue to engage with the banks on these issues to have more dialogue and education about why we think these kinds of projects are truly out of alignment with their pledged commitments on climate and sustainable development. Do you think that these banks recognize that there are alternative ways to invest? That is a really good question. Yes, I think they do understand about to some extent, but I think it's very limited, their understanding. Frankly, it depends on which institutions we're talking about because there's the private sector arms of these banks, which I think truly do not understand because I can tell you that, for example, with this loan to Louis Dreyfus, the IFC is basically saying that it is a sustainable development loan because we're supporting this company to develop their zero deforestation policy and their traceability policy. But they're supporting vast monoculture. Mostly it's going to like huge farms, 10, 12,000 acre farms that use massive amounts of pesticides and a lot of irrigated water. There's nothing sustainable about those kinds of farms. And so they truly don't understand what sustainability is in that particular instance. But I do think in the, in some of the parts of the bank, these banks loan money to government. So essentially, like the World Bank loans will make an agriculture loan to a government to then use the money in their own countries. And there are some loans that are going to support agroecological farming. And we're certainly not saying that they shouldn't fund any kind of livestock production, meat production, meat and dairy. Of course, we think at Friends of the Earth that they should be financing more sustainably produced meat and dairy because half of the world gets their income. Those small-scale farmers and pastoralists, they rely on livestock for their livelihoods. And we absolutely want the banks to be supporting a much more smaller, mid-scale agroecological approach with fewer animals, but the animals raised in much more sustainable systems where you have well-managed pasture and rangeland and The manure, instead of polluting the air and the water, the manure is used as organic nourishment for the soils and crops. And these kinds of systems actually can help with drought because they preserve biodiversity and they create a lot more healthy soils that hold the water. And so we are educating and we will continue to educate the bank about alternatives. And and I think there are some inside the bank that do understand that, but it's an educational process for sure. And of course, in the U.S. context, we've been at this now, what, for, you've been around for a long time, Melinda, I think, for like, how long have we been educating our policymakers about the need to invest in in organic and sustainable agriculture and how really those are solutions to climate change. Food and agriculture can be, is a major culprit in climate emissions, but it's also a solution. And we've been educating and talking about this for two decades. And finally, there's a little bit of traction on that, but they still fund these massive monoculture production systems. So 
there's just a lot more education that's needed. Oh, Kari, yeah. unfortunately, we are out of time. But I will provide links for the excellent publications that you've produced on this topic. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Kari Hammerschlag, Deputy Director of Friends of the Earth's Food and Agriculture Program. Thank you so much for bringing this issue to light and for all of your strong advocacy. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be with you.